avoidant, anxious, disorganized, secure. Life is a bell curve, really. Ultimately, most of us are going to fall in the middle and struggle in a variety of different ways at different times and in different relationships. These are strategies for coping and trying to get needs met, mm-hmm. trying to feel safe. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Ben Better. How about you? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health broken down in a relatable way and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ben Better. How about you? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and today we have Anxious attachment coach Chris Ratcliffe joining us. Welcome, Chris. Hi, everyone. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Doing great. Excited to be here and chat. Yes. I'm excited to, I feel like I have so many questions for you, but I wanted to start with just can you explain what anxious attachment is for those that don't know? Yeah, of course. I think it's so important for folks to understand attachment styles and attachment theory. Mm-hmm. Because it literally changed my life when I found out that I have an anxious attachment style. Before then, I thought I was crazy. I thought I was needy, clingy. These are all aspects and attributes from the outside and also sometimes from the inside that folks would use to describe an anxious attacher. They need a lot of reassurance and clarity and closeness. But I feel like that's me. Like I need a lot of reassurance. I mean, I feel like I'm better than I used to be. But anyway, a lot of your stuff was ringing true to me. I was like, hmm. But go on. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do you know your attachment style? I think it is anxious attachment. For Do you? Okay. I mean, I think with with a romantic relationship, because that's another right. question I have later where can people have different styles for different relationships? Like family, can that be different than love relationship or a friend relationship? Can there be different? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great question. And this kind of dovetails nicely with talking about attachment theory as a framework of understanding how we really build relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. And this research started really in the 1950s and 1960s by a bunch of different researchers in the field of attachment, which is a branch of psychology. And what they were doing is really studying- trendy though, recently, right? Don't you feel like, I feel like it's everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. In the last, I would say, probably 10 to 15 years, it's really become a part of the cultural conversation and zeitgeist in the same way that like love languages did. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. They're just a way of understanding ourselves and how we build relationships with other people. And I think it's also important for folks to know it's called a style for a reason. This is not a disorder. It's not officially a part of the DSM, which houses all of the disorders So it's important for people to know this is just a kind of cluster of coping mechanisms and adaptive strategies, or in other words, ways that we figured out through experiences that we've been through work for us in terms of getting our needs met. So you've got four attachment styles. And I like to think of it as a spectrum because you're never absolutely secure or absolutely anxious all the time. Like you mentioned, you said, you know, I've grown more secure over the years Mm -hmm. where you you kind of were hinting at that. And I have two. Right. So I think it's important for people to know these are not it's not like a death sentence. This is not a disorder. This is not this is not something that is written in stone. It is changeable because it's learned. 
These are right. learned strategies for getting your emotional needs met. So on the spectrum from insecure to secure, you've got the four attachment styles. You've got anxious, avoidant, and disorganized, which is a combination of both anxious and avoidant on the insecure side of things. And then on the secure side of things, you've just got secure. So it's really just about if you do find yourself more on the insecure side of things, trying to learn better, healthier strategies for getting needs met. Like, for instance, speaking up and communicating and saying, hey, I'm feeling a little bit anxious. I'm I am not really sure where I stand with you. And I'm hoping you can give me a little bit of reassurance about where your head's at. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling things are going? Learning to open up and express yourself is so important. And really, that's one of the defining, differentiating factors between the secure side of the spectrum and the insecure side of the spectrum is just communicating. Insecure attachers, whether it's avoidant or anxious or disorganized, they have strategies for not opening up. They, they cope in different ways. The avoidant shuts down, detaches, dismisses. The anxious person latches on requires a lot of reassurance and external validation. Also, don't really have healthy relationships with their bodies and their themselves. Right. Maybe and then you've got the combination of the two. I'm like, maybe I'm more the avoidant. <laughs> I don't know. I'm listening because well, it's just, it's interesting. So you can be yeah. a mix, right? You can be a mix. You can be a mix. Yes. And I think it's important. The, the label avoidant can be a misnomer. Avoidance is, it it means that it's not necessarily accurate. Just because you avoid, it doesn't mean that you're avoidant. People on the insecure side of the attachment spectrum avoid for a variety of different reasons. The anxious person avoids, let's say, having a difficult conversation because they're afraid of being too much, of being needy, of being left, of being abandoned. The avoidant attacher avoids because they only have a certain threshold for emotional risk and exposure that they can tolerate. They shut down. Okay. So maybe maybe it is accurate for you. I think because like for me personally, I had my heart broken so badly probably six years ago. I feel like I've become avoidant. Maybe I used to be more anxious. You know what I'm saying? And now I just kind of will shut down, I think, before getting hurt again. Or or I don't even go to let something, I think, grow to something because I'm so like, I can't go through that again. So that's, that sounds just hearing those. It sounds more, oh, okay, maybe that's me. But so many people think this is all bullshit. What do you say to that? Because I have a friend who's there, but says, I'm so sick of these attachment styles. And meanwhile, my psychiatrist gave me a love attachment book to read Mm because it's interesting, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, look, there's no end all be all framework for understanding yourself. If you come to attachment theory expecting it to solve all of your problems, it's not going to be able to do that. You know, human beings are incredibly complex and there's no model that's going to be able to change everything and solve and heal everything for you. But that said, again, just like love languages, it helps you to understand the ways in which you might be preventing yourself from having healthier relationships or ways of navigating relationships that are healthier for you based on your relational history. You know, that context is super powerful and really important. And attachment styles are labels and labels are limiting. 
And the more that I do this work, I've worked with hundreds of clients on five continents all over the world. And many of them have similar relational histories and experiences with trauma. And so the more I do this, the more I see the person and not the label. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important for people to hear. Avoidant, anxious, disorganized, secure. Life is a bell curve, really, ultimately. Most of us are going to fall in the middle and struggle in a variety of different ways at different times and in different relationships Mm -hmm. to your earlier question. Sometimes we might be more avoidant with someone. Other times we might be more anxious. Again, these are strategies for coping and trying to get needs met, Mm -hmm. trying to feel safe. And yeah, it's limiting. You know, it was created by humans. Humans are complex. We're not perfect. Right. So I do think for some, if they're hearing about attachment styles constantly and maybe it's not really working for them to understand themselves, there might be this frustration And because it has become a part of the cultural conversation at the level it has, I do think that folks are kind of like, okay, but what else? It's one way of looking at yourself and your relationships. It's super powerful. It doesn't hold all the answers. I feel like a psychiatrist or my psychiatrist would say your attachment is learned from your parents or how you were raised. Is that pretty Mm -hmm. accurate? It's like, yeah, absolutely. If you had an over bearing or a parent that was anxious, right? Or that was, what's going on? Are you safe? When are you going to be home? That kind of thing. I think that's definitely where I can become more anxious. Just that my father's like Mr. Safety, like 4,000 chargers with him at all time, like batteries, gas. Like the minute the gas tank is like below half empty, it's like, we have to, we're going to run out of gas. I'm like, dad, it's not even like past the half mark, but I think that can breed like anxiety. Did you think so that does your attachment styles comes up in childhood or is from the way you were raised? Your attachment style is based on the relationships that you've had to date. Every relationship that we have helps us to some extent see ourselves more clearly to get certain needs for connection and communication and closeness met or not met. And based on those experiences, we build imprints in our minds and also in our nervous systems of what to expect in the future. So it's a constantly moving target. It's ever evolving. And this is why for folks on the insecure side of the attachment spectrum, sometimes it does, for many it does, go back to childhood. It doesn't always. Sometimes you could have a great childhood and then you go out into the world and you have really tough, unfulfilling, unstable, inconsistent, maybe toxic, or I, I don't love throwing around that word, but it drives on the point. You've got unstable relationships that then train your nervous system. Oh, maybe I'm not safe. Your body expects maybe to get abandoned or maybe that it needs to latch on in the hopes of not losing someone. So it's all learned behavior. Sometimes that behavior goes back to childhood. For many of my clients and for myself, it does. And for me, it did. Mm -hmm. But that said, it can also start in adult relationships. If you go through a string of really bad relationships with the wrong people who are not safe for you, yeah, it can really mess with your system and the positive conditioning that you had growing up if you had that. For many of my clients, they did not. Well, it's funny because I had a pretty positive like upbringing. And even though my parents are more safety and, you know, you want a parent that's present and okay what time are you coming home a little anxious 
But I think that for me, what happened is some of my early relationships, I didn't feel safe. I was anxious. And then I think I identified that with, oh, that's how this is supposed to feel. So if I started dating someone where I didn't feel that way, I was like, oh, I don't really like them because I'm not like, when are they going to call or what's this or where are we going? Sometimes, like you're saying, your nervous system are almost training your body to something that is not healthy for you, but you think that's being in love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is Many scary. folks <laughs> learn. Oh, my God. It's so scary. You learn that intensity is love, that right. this roller coaster up and yeah. down, will they, won't they, are we, Adrenaline, we? yeah. Adrenaline, cortisol, all of those addictive chemicals that are released by the push-pull dynamic. Right. Many people misinterpret their body because we haven't really ever learned how to have healthier relationships with their bodies and to learn the signals mm -hmm. of what real safety and connection is, which is stability, consistency, right. reciprocity. Mm -hmm. There's a warmth. There's a, a gentle flow. Yeah, exactly. Right. So how It's not this did you up and down kind of roller coaster. I know what I think, or maybe even it's our literature and movies or a lot of times love is perceived as this like butterflies and, you know, going up the roller, going down the roller coaster. And, but is that really what you want? That doesn't sound safe to me. Like this constant no. wave. How did you kind of come on the other side? Can you take us through your yeah. personal story? Of course. Yeah. So I, I want to, before I get into sharing some of my yeah, own yeah. story and my own traumas, I want to provide a trigger warning for folks. Yes. So okay. I'm going to talk about sexual abuse, addiction. I'm going to talk about death. So if that's triggering for you, please fast forward for the next little bit. Okay. So when I was two, my parents divorced and my dad got custody of my middle sister and I because my mom was an alcoholic. She was completely okay. unstable. And so from the ages of about two to five, I lived kind of far away from my mom. My dad kind of guarded my sister and I. And then she ended up remarrying and lived in Maryland. So he relocated us to Maryland. Okay. And from the ages of about five to eight years old on my end, I saw my mom every other weekend. And then when I was eight, her second husband got a new job in Florida and they had to relocate. And at eight years old, I was left kind of bewildered, wondering, why, why are you moving? Why are you leaving me? Why are you abandoning me? I felt abandoned. And that's really one of the biggest wounds that I've had to address is going from seeing her two to three times a month to two to three times a year. And that was really hard. And I just, for years, was stuck in this cycle of, being ravenous to book the next trip and the next flight and wondering when am I going to see her and talking on the phone for hours back when long distance minutes were a thing. I'm dating myself now. I know long distance minutes, honey. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the struggle was real back in the day, folks. So <laughs> that said, I would get so excited counting down the days from literally hundreds, like counting down from 150 days to when wow. I would get to see her literally like how many sleeps are left, how many weeks are left, like this hyper vigilance, this hyper focus, which defines the anxious attachment style. And then I would go to see her. It would be blissful. It would be super fun. It would be intense. Mm -hmm. there, it was kind of catching up for lost time. It was all of this showered with gifts, going okay. to amusement parks, water parks, doing all these things that we didn't have time for, trying to fill the time with quality. 
And then I would leave and for weeks I would be despondent. I just was inconsolable, crying. You couldn't talk to me. I just was despondent. I mean, there's really no other word for it. That I was must have been so depressed. hard as a, as a child because that's that sounds like when you have a long distance relationship and it's it isn't real because you're not going through the laundry and the fights and the mundane life. Yeah. It's just these Disneyland and gifts and just these amazing times that you have to jam in these 48 hours or however long. So that yeah. kind of makes you expect something that isn't really realistic from someone. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it taught me that love is intense. Love is this longing. That love yeah. was something I only got to feel at a distance. Yes. Which led to me, my mom ended up passing away oh. from alcoholism and organ failure when I was oh 18. God. So throughout my 20s, I, oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I've come to terms with it now, but it was, it really was. I felt robbed of having a relationship with her. That abandonment that I felt then became literally physical. It it was real. She was no longer around. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get to know her really. And in my 20s, I recreated this distant dynamic. I ended up in long distance relationship after long distance relationship. And I kept asking myself, why? I'm in New York City. I'm a gay man. There's plenty of gay guys. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Why am I not, not meeting like in the middle someone? of nowhere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not in Nebraska or North Dakota. I mean, yeah. come on, you know, yeah. half of the population is gay in yeah. New York. I'm exaggerating. Okay. But you get the point. Yeah. And so it really just drove home what I had learned and the style of building relationships that I had learned specifically from my mom. Also, my dad was a traditional cisgendered heterosexual white guy. He, he didn't have the emotional capacity for this big, boisterous, deep hearted, like big feeling kid. And I don't blame him for that. He has since passed too. And we have talked about all of that, but right. I don't blame him for that. But he also wasn't there for me in ways that I needed. Right, he just didn't have the wheelhouse, really. It's, I mean, how could he in that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had these two parental figures. We're talking about where does it come from? I had these two parental figures that just weren't there for me, and I ached and longed for more depth, more support, more love, more encouragement. And instead, I learned to be a good boy, to achieve love, to get medals and trophies and straight A's and be salutatorian in my high school and do the international baccalaureate program and do all these things that of course I'm proud that I did, but that really were coming from a place of shame of me not feeling good enough and like I was deserving of love. And that pursuing, that look at relationships as something to be achieved is a core component of the anxious attachment style. And learning about it, it took a few years. What do you mean by years. that? Can you say that again? Because I think it's important. It's looking yeah, at of course. achieve, you said, the anxious. Look, looking at love as something that is achieved, as something that you need to pursue, that you need to earn. Do. Yes, exactly. You need to earn. You need to do sing- things in order to, to have it okay. is a core component of anxious attachment. Because it's this idea that one, you're not worthy of it. And two, that you have to be the one putting in the effort to get it. Mm-hmm. Anxious attachers are pursuers by nature. And 
unraveling this in to getting to your question in my own life had to do with a few different things. One, identifying where the hell did this come from? We've already established that here. And also I experienced sexual abuse with my sister. And there were all of these things that happened that were deeply painful in my core. By your sister? Yes. When I was five years old and she was 14, my sister molested me. She sexually abused me. And so the, the people that I was supposed to be able to trust the most, I found through experiences that I could not. So it's only natural that as an adult, I was pursuing people that were couldn't give a shit less about me, right. weren't right. really emotionally available or even looking for a relationship yeah. that were super distant, didn't really have communication skills. So it only further reinforced that, that void in me right. that I felt. And I started seeing a therapist. I started reading books and I discovered my attachment style. I have a degree in psychology yeah. and I had learned about attachment theory but I never connected the dots. And then just one day it clicked. My therapist asked me, have you heard of attachment theory? And I said, yeah, I have. Why do you ask? And she goes, well, I think you might have an anxious attachment style. I think this is something you should explore a little more. And, and she school, told me to read the they... book Attached. Oh, sorry. Did her... In school, did they just kind of gloss over it? I'm just curious. Like you said, you learned about it. Obviously, you have a degree in psychology. Was it just sort of Oh, this is one form of describing someone. It was like a paragraph in a textbook. Wow. It wasn't like, it wasn't even its own chapter. It wow. wasn't a module. It wasn't like a class topic. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's such a thing now. I mean, that's just so interesting that it, okay, it wasn't even its own chapter. No. No. And I think that's obviously shifting and evolving. Oh, now. yeah. Now there's whole books on it. it. Exactly. And my therapist telling me to read Attached, which is a really good intro to attachment theory, mm -hmm. especially for anxious attachers, because it's kind of geared more towards them. Yeah. It changed my life. I mean, I was reading the book. I, I read it cover to cover in 24 hours. I just was like, holy shit. I mean, I this is me. Like, mm -hmm. How did I not realize this sooner? And then I just started consuming as much as I could about it to understand more about myself. And I made a commitment that I would never stop talking about it because it just was such a watershed, game changer, light bulb, aha moment for me where I finally realized I'm not the only one. This is not, it's not just me. Yeah. This is a known set of behaviors that comes from very specific experiences and trauma mm -hmm. and then developing a healthier relationship with my body and learning how to set boundaries and learning how to speak up for my needs. These pieces fell into place over time, learning to better regulate my nervous system, to cry it out, Cold exposure, meditation, all the things yes, I now that, do and have my it, clients I do. I love that you talk about cold exposure because I have become addicted to cryo. It has really, mm. which, but like you said, you can just, I love, I've always loved a cold shower and it yeah. really does get you out of your head and you get the endorphins that if it's, if you went working out or even if you're having an anxiety attack and you run your hands under really cold water, it really helps. It really, but it was interesting of you said that it helps build tolerance in the nervous system by giving the body an actual threat. In the future, when there's a perceived threat in your environment, you have more time and space to respond 
because you're better regulated to do so. That's yes. really cool because I had no, I, I mean, I knew about the endorphins and I actually recently had really bad whiplash. I ride horses and I was thrown off my oh. horse, which sounds more, you get thrown off horses sometimes a lot when you ride, but, but my PT, cryo's been around forever and she said, you should try it. And it got rid of in three days, but also it really helped with my anxiety. It was wild to me because I mean, it's been around a long time. And I think a lot yeah. of people in athletics do it. But the reason it's helping you with an injury is it constricts all your blood vessels. And then when you come out, all the blood rushes. And so I think similar to what you're saying that all the blood's rushing to you of coming back of, oh, now we're back to real life. It's kind of like you take a little escape. It's interesting. It is. It, and there are so many benefits to this. And yeah. of course, it's uncomfortable because people listening or, or potentially watching are going to be like, I don't want to take a cold shower. I don't want to. I, I know, know. I have girlfriends that are like, Katie, and, how do you do this? Because I always have loved yeah. to end the shower with really cold. And they're like, we don't. I mean, for me, I like it because it helps with anxiety. It helps just calm me down. But yeah, it's not for everyone, I guess. But go on. <laughs> no. Well, that's that's the whole point. You're putting your body in an uncomfortable state. Right. But you're doing so in a controlled manner. And one of the yes. other aspects of this that's so powerful for folks is many of us experienced powerlessness growing up where we had no choice but to endure the abuse or neglect or invalidation right. from school, parents or siblings. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And as an adult, you can now put yourself in controlled, stressful environments like with cold exposure. Mm -hmm where you're now training your body, not only that it can handle and complete the stress cycle. Many of us learn to intervene in the stress cycle and not complete it. Mm, you yes. learn to overthink as a way to, of yes. coming out of your body. Yeah, like I got to get out of here. In the body. Yeah. Yes. Or completely shutting down, having a freeze response, no pun intended, based on right. what we're talking about. Right. But all that said, you're demonstrating to the body as well as building stress tolerance that you are capable of guiding yourself. It builds a sense of agency. And for those who were robbed of that sense of agency growing up, who didn't have parents that were attuned to them or really understood or saw them or even asked about how they were feeling, mm -hmm. you can do this for yourself because you're plugged in to your body. You're sitting with that discomfort. You're breathing through it. You're teaching yourself, you're training right. your body and your nervous system in ways that you didn't have a parent do for you growing up. Yeah, that's powerful. Really, very powerful. It is very powerful. And that's interesting where and in, another interesting looking at it where you have agency over your own body. Yes. And exactly. Or making the choice. I'm going to go in and do this and see it through or do as much as I can and build upon that which is really yes. cool. It's very cool. Go, for me, the, the three biggest things that have helped with my healing journey are exercise. I work with a personal trainer yes. three times a week. I lift I weights. I have to do it. it. Yep. It, it, you get the endorphins. You're building stress in the yep. body and learning how to be with that. You're literally breaking down muscle and building it back up. Mm -hmm. So you're building back stronger and you're stressing the body in key ways, controlled ways that do give you that sense of agency as well. Cold exposure, like we're talking about, is the second one. And then the third one is meditation. And I just want people to hear me clearly. There is no wrong or right way to meditate. Monks that meditate for hours a day 
say that their mind wanders. So please don't beat yourself up if you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or dinner, or if, if you didn't hear back from a text or the email that you need to send. It's natural. I am not great at meditating, but I've just learned, just learned, like, I'll just do it at this stoplight. Like for me, I can't make, I can't be like, um, like, let me sit on the yoga mm-hmm. mat. That makes me more distracted. Like I feel my age, yeah. but if I do it almost passively, I find that more helpful. You know? There's so but many I, different forms. Like you're saying, there's so many different ways. Cooking can be meditation. Walking in nature can be meditation. Right. You don't always have to close your eyes and focus only on the breath. It's about present moment awareness and just oh. being in your body. Okay. So are there certain apps you do that are helpful for meditation or you like to? Yeah, I so I use a combo and I have my clients pick, you know, apps and different kinds of meditation right. that work for them yeah. because we're just trying to see what sticks. And right. a big part of anxious attachment and healing from it is learning to listen to your body. So okay. I'm not here to tell them which version of meditation to do and where to get it. I do give them thought starters. Right. Personally, I use Headspace. I use Calm. Yes. And I have this sunlight alarm clock. Mm, and okay. oh, it's from this company called Hatch. Yes. And it's this, okay. this sunrise alarm clock. And at night, you can build a routine. So there's like a reading light. And then after that, I meditate. And then there's white, a white noise aspect to it as well. So it's kind of, you know, multidimensional. But I meditate at night before bed through that hatch okay. alarm clock too. That's cool. And meditate you find, with clients. And that works for you. But everyone, like you're saying, everyone is different. I think people do think yeah. you have to be sitting like crisscross applesauce with the eyes <laughs> shut. And I uh-huh. mean, and that for me, it, that makes me feel crazy. All I'm doing I get is that. thinking yeah. is mon- mind yeah. is racing. I like laying down before bed and emptying my mind in that way and calming my body. There are times now, and I'm not a heavy sleeper at all. I think this comes with having anxiety and experiencing anxiety. No, but it really helps me to let go of the tension in my body. And there are times now where I will be meditating for bed and I will fall asleep, which is like great. unheard of for me. But yeah. if, you sh- if you struggle with that and you're listening to this, you might want to consider maybe meditating before bed or laying down. It can help too. To just get in that kind of mindset. How much of a spike did you see post-pandemic with anxious attachment? Myself or Just like in general? As a, as a coach, really. So. I mean, the numbers are so bad, I'll, right? With depression and obviously anxiety yeah. goes hand in hand. I'm just curious what you yourself saw in your practice. There's in our culture right now with dating apps Oh, and this the worst session, the uh, worst. Yeah. I'm sorry for oh. attack. If you have anxious attachment, I don't find them helpful at all. Everyone I've dated, a, I've always met in real life, but obviously it's no, it can be very hard to meet people. But yeah, yeah I find that they just this, it just creates more anxiety. It does. Yeah. I mean, that that's the whole it point can. here. <laughs> Dating apps add to anxiety. The cult, the political culture and environment we're in adds to anxiety. Yeah. <clears throat> Talks about climate change. I mean, it, you name it. Just being in the era in which we live is anxiety inducing. And is it anxious attachment? Is it cultural? It's impossible to know. 
Right. And it's impossible to really decipher and pull apart those, the context there. For many people, again, it does go back to childhood. It can get exacerbated in adulthood and relationships. And then the environment and climate in which we find ourselves now in a variety of different ways only exacerbates it further. So I think it's just important for people to understand that it's about slowing down. It's about learning to better regulate your nervous system, being for yourself, being there for yourself in ways that other people were not for you previously, whether that's an ex or a parent or a friend or all the above. And you can heal. You're not absolutely anxious. You're not broken. You don't require fixing. You can heal. And you don't have to, there's no such thing as being fully healed. So please don't chase that either. And be careful how you talk about yourself because so many people that reach out to me have struggled for so long and really look at themselves as being broken. Yes. And one of the first things I tell them is, look, regardless of whether you decide to work with me, you have to stop telling yourself that you are broken. It is only reinforcing a sense of shame, which keeps you locked in anxious attachment. If you feel like you're not good enough, of course, you're going to latch on to people. Yeah. You have to stop doing that because anxious attachers mother their partners. There's so much pressure. Love can't thrive in that kind of controlling, manipulative environment. It's based on guilt, not gratitude. It's based on a prison, not freedom. Right. That doesn't feel good in either side of the equation for the other person, for you, it doesn't feel good. Right. And this is why many anxious attachers only end up in relationships that reinforce the deep sense of shame that they have and the feeling that they're not ever going to find someone that wants to connect with them as deeply as they crave. If you're anxiously, you know, that's your style, anxious attachment. What attachment style do you end up dating a lot of the time or end up with maybe marry? I don't know, long-term relationship. I'm just curious, as I'm sure many people listening will be. Anxious attachers notoriously connect with avoidance. And that's because they reaffirm the core beliefs about each other. The anxious attachers' core beliefs are, and I've sprinkled them throughout yeah. our conversation. Yeah. I always get left. I'm going to no end up alone. No value. I don't have any value. Exactly. Yes. I'm needy. I'm clingy. I'm too much. And... The avoidant is afraid that they're going to lose their sense of autonomy, that people always try to control and manipulate them, that people need them. They don't need other people. They're kind of the lone wolf. Yes. And so it starts off so intense and there's such intense chemistry between these two yes. folks because they're so open in the beginning. And then once things start to get real, I find usually between week six and 10, yeah. In the anxious avoidant dynamic that early on, the avoidant will reach their threshold for emotional exposure. They will disengage. They'll go radio silent. They need space to come back to homeostasis and to feel safe again. So they'll disengage. They're not going to tell you. They're going to disappear on you. Yeah. And it goes from talking all the time to not talking at all. And this is the biggest trigger of the anxious person. They're like, what the hell happened? Where did you go? They're immediately going into fixation mode and pursuing mode. Mm -hmm. What did I do? Is everything okay? And it only drives the avoidant further away, which only further triggers the anxious person. And they get caught in this push-pull cycle 
wow. that tends to spiral down and down and down until it erodes into nothing. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think when I had more anxiety in a relation like that, I'm thinking of this one person I dated that was very much him. But then what was funny is when I grew, grew and I would no longer, I was just like, I'm done. Like I can no longer try. Then he kind of became, the, I was like, what are you doing? Where are you? I don't understand why you won't call me like for a year. But I just, yeah. I mean, what kind of, the, there's no, this sounds very dire, but to be honest with you, there is no happy ending for those two people. Like, it's just not worth it. If someone is listening, they're in, I mean, together. I don't mean happy ending of them on their own, but when those two types are together, I just don't see how that can be successful. So it can, it can. It can okay, but... never mind. Never. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can. No. It does take work on both parts. And a lot of this work, well, not in like not anxious. not in therapy. Like they can't just be successful. Like be the same way on their own. Yes, they both have to learn to open up to one another to honor the needs of the other person. Which again, okay. they're opposite. That the anxious person needs closeness. The avoidant needs space. Anxious yeah. person needs reassurance. The avoidant looks at you know dependence as weakness. Right. So it's important to not personalize the other person's needs. Space is a healthy part of any relationship. And so when an avoidant takes it, it doesn't mean that they care less about you. It actually means that they care a whole hell of a lot about you. So you've got to learn to look at it differently. And also as an anxious attacher, learn to value your own time and space right. instead of constantly being with them, subverting your own needs, dropping all of your own friendships and passions and hobbies and interests. Do all of those things, boo. You got to go do them. Stop mm -hmm. ignoring the things that matter most to you because you met someone that you connect with. That is a recipe yeah. for imbalance and a disaster. Yes. I That's like why so many that anxious friend. avoidant. Oh, my goodness. Yes. They disappear as soon as they meet someone that they yeah. connect with. And it's <laughs> so unhealthy. I call this emotional diversification, this idea that we need a variety of different relationships. And there's a quote that I think will resonate with people that I say all the time, which is, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Why does that stop at 18? Mm. You need a village. Who is your village? Your newfound romantic interest is not your village. Right. You existed before them. You had friendships, interests, mm -hmm. hobbies before them. You've got to keep pursuing them. This right. is emotional diversification. Diversification being a concept borrowed from the field of finance, obviously. Right. You're setting yourself up for less risk emotionally when you're cultivating relationships in different aspects of your life instead of just going all in on a romantic partnership with someone that, to be quite frank, you don't really know yet. Mm -mm. No, it takes so, I mean, at least a year to really get to know somebody. That makes a lot of sense. You've mentioned before the five languages of love, which I love that book, which is very short. It's and it really can clarify a lot for people. Yeah. Why? I feel like most people know it, but then I'm always surprised there's that one person that's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I know. The, the five love languages is a book that changed my life. And I look at it as another framework for understanding emotional needs and who you are and what makes you feel appreciated and valued. Just like you know, in attachment theory, if you're an avoidant, you know you need your independence, you know you need your space. You don't beat yourself up about that. Hopefully, you learn to embrace that, and that's what makes you more secure. It's who you are. It's okay. Right. Those are healthy things as long as you communicate about it. 
which yeah, so many do not. That's true. Because I feel like I'm a little both where then you just like one day are like, I can't take this anymore. Like it's too much, this relationship, instead of the balance like you're talking about. Instead of saying, look, I'm, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now. Mm-hmm. I need a little bit of time to regroup. This doesn't mean I care any less about you, but give me a couple of days. How about we regroup on Friday? Mm-hmm. That's the healthy and secure approach. It's literally that easy. And yet when you go through trauma, it's that hard. So I think it's important to pursue any framework that better helps you to understand what makes you feel appreciated and understood and loved. And that's what the five love languages offer. Words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, physical touch and acts of service. And of course, there are different interpretations of the love languages now people have added to it. But it's a really interesting way of thinking about, okay, what do I really want Mm -hmm. from this person? And to see to what extent you're aligned with someone, you know, especially in the early stages of dating, you know, if they're physical touch and you hate being touched, how are you going to navigate that? You got to talk about that. Yeah, that. That's tough, like you said. But yeah, if you really want it to work, you can talk about it. But yeah, when I read that, I was like, oh, I'm quality time. If we don't spend time, mm. I'm that way with friends, family, everyone. Like, I want to spend time with people. You know, yes. it, it's, it's very interesting where someone else is maybe following through. Like, you, if you don't take the trash out when you say you're going to take the trash out, like they lose their mind. Or like some people just want mm-hmm. gifts. There's, it's interesting, not just gifts, but you know what I mean? They like yeah. that kind of expression. Yes. Look, there, there's no shame in wanting anything that helps you to feel safe, connected and understood and valued in a partnership. Right. And I think it's important for people to hear that. If gifts help you to feel that way, great. This doesn't make you, you know, shallow or vain or materialistic. If you grew up with parents who showered you with gifts, it's natural you're going to crave that. If yeah. you grew up in an environment where you didn't have anything. It's natural. You would crave that. It always operates at either extreme. Right. You either had a lot of it or not very much of it. Right. And that's what helps us to develop the needs that we have. Right. But needs are neither good nor bad. They're just right. different and they're contextualized based on the experiences that we've been through. So yeah. you have to validate that for yourself. If you want quality time, also remind yourself it's about quality. So many folks who are in relationships, long-term relationships, And they're anxious and they're working with me. They'll tell me, Chris, we're sitting in the same room, but we're not together. And I'll say, well, that's time, but that's not quality time. Yeah, on the phone or watching TV. Exactly. Yeah, you're not like out walking or sharing a nice meal. Yeah, that's that's a good, very good point. And I think like when you mentioned with gifts, that's true. If you grew up in a family that no one really celebrated Christmas or birthdays, and then you're suddenly dating someone, you're like, that happened to me with one of my ex-boyfriends where I was like, wait, this is my Valentine's Day gift. You know what I mean? It was like a mm-hmm. like a card that was like a check, like you're great. I mean, it was pretty bad. Wow. You know, look at okay. your face. And I'm like a romantic. So I would have much rather just had quality time, like meal, candles, flowers. Do you know what I mean? I think that's hard where it, you really have to have that conversation. Wow, is this this is someone that doesn't celebrate Christmas or, you know, Hanukkah or whatever religion you are, right? And then I I have to have a tree. I have to do this. Or this is how we expressed ourselves. Like that, those are real conversations that people need to work through. And I think people yeah. get caught up in that honeymoon love and then 
like the shit hits the van a year later. And it's, it's difficult. It's not easy. Yep. The sooner you talk about preferences, especially around the stuff that matters most to you. And I do right. a lot of values based work with clients because needs can shift right. pretty frequently. Values tend to be more stable. Yes. So looking for alignment based on values is important. And I use the word alignment for a reason. It's not an all or nothing proposition, but it's about to what extent are we aligned in the key areas that matter for me? Mm-hmm. Always bringing the focus back to you. And again, attachment that sounds theory, like my love mom languages. always talks about that. My mom's like, well, do you have the same values as this person? And I used to be like, but now I'm like, oh, no, she's right. You know, she's and it's true. I realized with this ex-boyfriend, like we had completely different ideas of what we want our futures to look like. And it wasn't going to change. I mean, literally polar opposite. So right. that it can be a wake up call. But in retrospect, like I needed that because it actually made me realize what I wanted. It wasn't. That. Mm. So that can be a good thing, even if it's painful at the time. Exactly. Right? And this is why relationships are a learning opportunity mm-hmm. for us. You know, and the more secure you grow, the more you approach any relationship with a open heart and open mind, a sense of curiosity. Who is this person? It's fun. It's it's meant to be an exploration. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, it doesn't have to be so scary. It doesn't have to be defined by, you know, is this person going to be the one or is it going to end in disaster? And you you mentioned earlier about how pop culture reinforces this. And just that line reminded me of the line from blank space. So it's going to be forever or it's going to go down in flames. Yeah. That's an anxious attachment style song. And one of the reasons I went viral on TikTok early on is because I started unpacking pop songs through the lens of attachment theory. Yes. Taylor. So that's funny, but it's true. A lot of her songs are anxious. She probably say I am anxious at action. You know what I mean? I think that can be a lot of people's, especially like you're saying deep feeling emotional. I mean, that's, I think that can maybe lend itself to having anxious attachment and having anxiety. Yes, exactly. And also it sells a lot of albums and it it sells a lot of movie tickets and it gets people to tune in TV. Those stories are compelling because they're dramatic. Right. That's why our entertainment reflects that back at us. Yeah. When you're going on a date or you're meeting someone new, it's always like, oh, are they going to like me? And you really have to switch, which my therapist helped me a lot a few years ago of, well, do I like them? Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to be asking yourself. Why do people tend to go to that or folks tend to go to that place of, God, I hope they like me at this date, which it doesn't even have to be a date or no your meetings, like a group of friends. But I, I just go to date because we're talking about, you know, romantic relationships. And I think that's something I always used to worry about. Like, oh, I will. I hope he's going to like me. And now I'm like, he's lucky to be having dinner with me. You know, like you have to kind mm-hmm. of, I find sometimes you have to go to the extreme because you know that that's not really how you're going to go in, but it gets you out of that anxious place. As human beings, we're social creatures. And as we've evolved, obviously, the way that our society is set up is vastly different from when we were hunter-gatherers in the savannas of Africa. Yeah. But we used to, and still are, to a deep degree, a tribal species. Mm -hmm. And belonging and being a part of the group is a core need that we all have. It's a universal human need. Now, 
That said, when you layer in attachment theory on top of that, yes, anxious attachers have an even deeper desire for belonging and for validation and acceptance because of the deeply invalidating experiences that they've been through. So it makes sense, you know, that if you are an anxious attacher, you're naturally going to be wired isn't the right word, but inclined Mm -hmm. to ask yourself, do they like me instead of do I like them? That said, again, it's a human thing. We all want to be liked. We all want to belong. Just because you experience that doesn't mean you have to limit yourself by a label. But if it becomes so acutely or intensely overwhelming for you, if it's something that really derails your dating experience and you're constantly outwardly focused, Mm -hmm. yes, this could be something that you need to work on. That hypervigilance is a sign of nervous system dysregulation. Dysregulation just means you're overreacting or you're underreacting. Okay. Okay. And in that case, you're overreacting. Your system is mobilizing energy in your body because you're preparing for a potential threat. Do they like me? I've got to change who I am. Right. Obviously, that doesn't create more security. So nervous system regulation and starting in the body is key for that, too. You don't just reframe your way out of it. Yeah. Obviously, that that reframe that your therapist offered for you is powerful, but you're also using somatic techniques mm-hmm. like we talked about to help build more tolerance in your body for stress in yes. those moments, like cryotherapy and, yes, you know, making sure you work out. You know what I mean? The nerve, you just kind of get that energy out where, OK, I feel more in my body, literally, you know, you feel yes. more secure, you're a little more relaxed. And I do think that it's important. Yes. You need both. For right. those listening, you you need both. You've got to have the cognitive techniques. You need the somatic work too and the body-driven stuff. Is somatic, it's just actually, for those who don't know, is that related to, if you can define that word? Yeah. So somatic work would be body-driven. That's okay. all that it means. Okay. It has to do with the feelings in your body, not the thoughts that you're experiencing cognitively. Okay. okay. It's healing is about 80% uh, somatic and 20% cognitive. And yet many of us flip that and we start with I think people thinking think it's the things. other. Yeah. Like I wouldn't really. Yes. That much 80 with the body. Okay. Trauma is stored in the body. There's a, yes. a famous yeah. book. Trauma, the body keeps the score based on trauma and all of the research being done about trauma now and polyvagal theory, which has to do with nervous system regulation. It's all based on it being stored in the body. This is why when you're triggered or you feel unsafe, you have a visceral response. Yeah, it's like your the body, body doesn't lie. That's another book, this acupuncture. Yeah. And it's true. It's like if you don't ever go through therapy or release things, right? You end up getting sick going to the hospital because your body is literally saying like, I need help. You're not Mm -hmm. releasing any of this and it's storing there. You mentioned poly someone? Polyvagal theory is the name of the theory that's currently being explored right now in terms of healing trauma and working with nervous system regulation to do so. Polyvagal just means like, you know, you've got the vagus nerve and you've got wings off of the vagus nerve dorsal, et cetera. I'm not going to okay. get into all the scientific lingo yeah. for folks. But that said, what, I thought you know, Polly was like a person. I was like, is this a woman who's written a new book? <laughs> I don't know. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. But that is polyvagal theory related yes. to the vagus nerve. OK. Yes. Mm-hmm. OK. Well, we always end with five questions. These are like 
little rapid fire questions. What do you do for a mental break? I read. I'm constantly reading. I, usually it's nonfiction, but lately okay. my friends and I started a book club and we're, I'm reading more fiction this year. Okay. Lots of thrillers, psychological thrillers. It just helps me to calm down and expand my mind and to just expand my worldview, you know? Yeah. Just going through what I've been through and doing the work that I do, I can get really hyper-focused, right? Mm -hmm. Expanding my mind really helps with that. So reading is always my go-to. That's great. When is the last time you cried? Probably yesterday or the day before, <laughs> I mean. I'm so glad to hear you say that because some guests are literally like this. They're like, oh, three months. And I'm like, this morning? Like, yeah, like I'm crying all the time. <laughs> Crying is actually a form of nervous system regulation. You're letting it out. You're returning your body to homeostasis. So that's I cry a good all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I cry as often as I can. It's your body's natural release. So release yeah. it. Yeah. Let, them, let those tears fly. Yes. You mentioned this earlier. What are you currently reading? Mm. I'm reading The Seeker's Guide. Okay. By what is her name? The book is over there. Her last name is Lesser. It's a uh, thriller. No, no. This okay. is a spiritual self-help book about okay. the new kind of American spirituality and the blending of different philosophies. I take kind of a more holistic approach okay. because spirituality and connection to source energy or the universe or God, for those who believe in God, has really helped me, again, expand my perspective and know that I'm supported, I'm loved, I belong, I'm a part of the fabric of humanity and trying to balance my humanity with my divinity at times has be, been challenging, but it's mm. something I love. And so I read a lot of spiritual self-help books, The Untethered Soul, A Return to Love, A New Earth, some of my absolute favorites. So yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. And what is the best and worst advice you've been given? I'm going to start with worst. Okay. <laughs> Time heals all wounds is the worst <laughs> advice I have ever heard. Time does not heal all wounds. If it did, we all would have healed from the shit that we have been through. Okay. Yeah. Time <laughs> allows things to fester, to right. steep into your subconscious and to take over your life. Mm -hmm. It is terrible advice. It is what you do with the time that matters. And, and I, I always like say that. still give that advice, right? Oh my God. Constantly, constantly. Like, it's terrible advice. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it can get worse. Sometimes time. Yeah. Like you're saying. It does. Yeah. That's okay. Your nervous system seeks out what is familiar. If you don't heal with and deal with the things that you have been through, mm -hmm. you're only going to repeat it. You seek out dynamics that feel familiar to you. So you'll seek out that emotional unavailability that you're accustomed to. You'll seek out the instability and the intensity that you're accustomed to. Time does not heal that. Worst advice I've ever gotten. Best advice. That one's harder. Best advice <laughs> I've ever gotten. Here's. This is funny because I have a blog on my site, the 11 best pieces of advice I've ever received. And now I can't remember a single one. I'll, I'll share with you what I leave my clients with at the end of our coaching journey together, mm -hmm. which is the most important aspect of healing work 
is to learn to trust yourself, to learn to slow down and listen to the quieter, softer voice inside, not the voice of urgency, not the voice of ego, not the voice of fear or abandonment, but the voice of belonging and knowing. I believe we all have a voice inside that knows what we need. And oftentimes we ignore it. We keep busy schedules. We distract ourselves. And so we don't hear it. And a lot of the healing work in growing more secure and shifting from the insecure to the secure side of the attachment spectrum is learning to trust yourself again. And, you know, people seek me out for me to give them answers. And it's not that I don't. I help connect the dots. I help synthesize. But I don't have all the answers. And that external seeking is core to anxious attachment. So learning to flip that on its head and remind people, no, you don't need me to tell you what you need to do. You need to actually stop and listen to what your body is telling you that you need right now. Trust yourself. You mean that the body, you're listening to the wrong voice, really, which so many of us, you get caught up in this. But is that really what you want just out of a habit? Yeah. Yes. Interesting. And then number five, what Instagram account do you find uplifting, if any? I stopped using social media for vanity purposes years ago. Yeah. And it changed my mental health entirely. I actually have a blog on my site. I think it's 76 inspirational Instagram accounts to follow. So there's so oh, many to choose from. But the one that I had, it's so hard to name one. I I'll, well, I'll give, I mean, we can link the site, but yeah, but like, I wanted you to go before two. you say that, what, why did you stop using, that's a great line, Instagram for vanity purposes. Yes. I stopped following hot models and celebrities and okay. news outlets. And yeah, I just disengaged from a lot of that because it just made me feel bad about myself. And I think that, and I, started, I think so many accounts that people follow they really do and I, and I think to my like why are you following that like it's great to unfollow people I unfollow people all the time <laughs> like me the people I know I'm just like I'm sick of you but no I mean it's true I think we get caught up in wanting to like keep up with the Joneses and I, I think it can be really detrimental like that people don't feel better after being on Instagram for an hour most of the time or even 30 minutes or 10 minutes your information diet has a massive impact on your mental health and what you consume directly impacts how you feel about the world and also yourself. Yes. So just, I made a commitment to stop, you know, just posting photos out with friends and right. on vacation. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. It just, yeah. the intent behind it was for validation and was for vanity. You know, it didn't mean anything. It didn't have a deeper right. purpose. Right. Now what I share is to help people heal and I follow people like that too. Right. So the most impactful Instagram account I follow is the holistic psychologist. I love Dr. Nicola yes. Perra. She's incredible. She's great. They're in Arizona. Fan. But that that account is just so powerful. I also love Jillian Tarecki and her work. Okay. I love Young Pueblo. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's so, so many, but those are my three favorite. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there are some good accounts that I think can be. I'm like best friends with a raccoon on Instagram. So I'm following <laughs> animals. <laughs> like, literally, I'm not kidding, so. Look, that can be uplifting. That's, That's what I mean. Really For great. me, I'm my, my, my string will be like, are you dating anyone? Are you talking to anyone online? I'm like, well, Louie. The raccoon, like, yeah, (laughs) it's just for me, all the animal videos, I think it's like, find your thing. Like you're saying you like to follow these, you know, philosophers and therapists and whatnot, it helps you because it's true. That is another great line. You have so many great lines, but it's true of like your information diet and how it can really affect your mental health. And we, I forget there was a quote of how much we get on a daily basis that no one ever thought a human being would have to digest that much information it's not healthy for us even if it's positive it's just so much coming at us all the time yeah i set screen time limits for myself it's it's hard but it's it's so important and it does have a massive impact on how you feel about yourself and how you look at the world and just your mental health in general is so important please know that what you're consuming whether it's food or diet related or information related, it all impacts you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. And thank you to Chris for joining me. Where can our listeners find you? Thank you so much for having me, Katie. This has been awesome. Love chatting with you. Yeah. Folks can find me if you're interested in reading my free blog content or potentially working with me as your coach. You can find me on cracklift.com. It's my first initial for Chris. <laughs> Last name, Rackliff. Thank you. So C Rackliff, C-R-A-C-K-L-I-F-F-E.com. And if you want to land specifically on my coaching page, it's slash coaching. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Cracklift. I've got a ton of videos that I've posted on TikTok, hundreds at this point. Mm-hmm. So come join us. We'd love to have you. It's super uplifting, really positive and affirming and validating. It's educational. It's informational. So come learn on TikTok. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.